The American Federation of Government Employees, which represents a couple of hundred thousand Veterans Affairs employees, is gleeful these days. It helped shoot down a plan for an independent review board to look at VA's proposals for rearranging its nationwide map of facilities. For why they oppose the plan so much, we turn to the first executive vice president of AFGE's National VA Council, Mary Jane Burke. MJ, good to have you on. Uh, Thanks, Tom, for covering this issue for us. And tell me, why is AFGE so opposed to the idea of looking? I mean, given the changing demographics of where veterans are, shouldn't they redo the map? Well, a couple of things that I'm going to get a little bit down in the weeds with you, Tom. I think you kind of covered this a little bit in your reporting. The the Mission Act set forth and said, okay, we're recommending closing 60 facilities without the subsequent appropriation necessarily of the over 100 million, I think, recommendations for the appropriations to go with it. And I think that a lot of the data in GAO, some studies on this was kind of flawed data in those recommendations. And when we were briefed about these situations, we came away with that, calling it the closure commission. More or less, I think, you know, when you're talking about 60 medical centers and countless, I think it was like at least 40 or more, eliminating entire services such as inpatient medical, mental health, surgical care, emergency rooms, and other situations with flawed data. I think that should be a big concern for taxpayers and everybody just because study after study demonstrates that we do kind of a better job and the trust scores internally with veterans coming to these facilities is higher. They prefer it. So I think that's the first thing going forward that I would like to say. Well, the review board, the nine-person board that was to be appointed, I guess, by the Mm -hmm. administration and then confirmed by the Senate, were you not confident that they would discover the same flaws if there had been GAO reports and different studies? Why not have the review board? I don't think we were necessarily confident of that. And, you know, even within some of our internal discussions when we were saying, hey, is this based on some make or buy decisions? Is it based on demographics? You could get some traction on some of the demographics, but more or less, it was just kind of chasing a cloud, I thought. So I wasn't exactly convinced that was a good idea in many of these facilities And I wasn't convinced necessarily, as well as some of the bipartisan Senate committee led by Tester, thought it might not have come to the same conclusion as well. Right. Senator Tester. Right. Exactly. Well, let me ask you this. Fundamentally, does AFGE, do the employees feel that something should change at VA because of the fact that more and more veterans are moving to different regions of the country than have some of the large hospitals now? Some of the large medical centers are functionally obsolete buildings. So should there be some effort at all to take a look at the map of facilities and do some rearranging? That's a great question. I think what McDonough plans to do is like every four-year review, they currently have the ability to do care in the community. So that is one thing. I think sometimes what's getting lost in some of these things is like, are you on historic grounds? There are laws covering those situations. We have what we call internally the SKIP program. 
They've defunded considerably a lot of the capital infrastructure way back in 2019 intentionally. And so I think having higher discussions, specifically looking at the legal compliance of the Mission Act regarding staffing, I think is really important. If the VA facilities know how much mental health you have, how much orthopedic surgery you need, how many CLC units you have or will need based on the demographics you have, that seems to me a much more logical way to approach things. Instead, what we're kind of seeing across the country is the closure and kind of gimmicking of inpatient beds, occupancy rates, and so forth. So that's one of the comments I would like to make regarding the Mill Act. So the two things I kind of think of the way I would like to talk about the Air Act is first through the lens of the Mill Act and second through the staffing requirements of the Michigan Act. And if those two things kind of are flawed, then you're going to have flawed data coming out for the Airs Act. We're speaking with MJ Burke. She's first executive vice president of AFGE's National VA Council. So you would start over basically then with a review of facilities with better data and maybe more collaboration with the people affected, such as your members? Absolutely. Yes. The answer to that is yes, because what we're interested is not causing harm to high-quality comprehensive, and the word should be underscored, comprehensive healthcare system for care that veterans prefer. And that's the way I would approach it, necessarily. And I don't think that's what we were seeing Um, And I don't think that's what the senators felt they were seeing as well. And you are still in negotiations, right, nationally with Veterans Affairs. Is that part of the negotiations or are they separate issues? No, it is not. It's totally separate. While we have you, what is the state of negotiations? Because uh, (laughs) that seems to have been going on for quite some years now. For a long time, Tom. (laughs) You're on top of it, right. Well, we are in a series of every two weeks on, two weeks off, negotiating portions of the master agreement. It's a frustrating process, I will say that. You know, I know you've covered the status of labor relations in VA and the status of the bureaucracy, and it it just feels like, to some degree, it's continuing. You know, I think when you're dealing with the operational people, it gets easier when Both parties say, hey, we are identifying problems that we want to solve. And it seems like sometimes VA, from my perspective, doesn't want to establish and admit to the problems that the agency has. I think things would go smoother with labor relations. If they own that, then we could come up with a plan on how to mitigate those problems significantly through contracts. So that's where, in an overarching situation, I can talk about you know, awards, you know, retention isn't where it should be of a government, uh, particularly our critical care infrastructure. We're working on that. There's been some resistance in that area. So, yeah, it's a continuing frustration that I wish would improve, and I'm not exactly sure we're seeing improvement in those areas. It's interesting because while this is going on, it sounds like, though, labor relations day-to-day aren't so terrible since VA did pretty well in the best places to work in the federal government rankings that came out a couple of weeks ago. Right. So I I saw that. And I think, like, if you, (laughs) this is how I phrase it, you know, the work itself, like when you're working for the agency, isn't so bad. Like the mission 
When you work with a patient, that's the best part of your day. They are the greatest end users. They don't complain. They're, you know, just wonderful. And around those scores all the time, constantly, a constant thread is our devotion to the mission of what we do. I mean, people can talk about NASA, putting people on Mars, the Goddard Space Mission, blah, 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 blah. I actually think the VA is really one of the best agencies to work for in regards to our mission and kind of like how we take care of our people that raise their hand. So from that, I think I understand why people think it's the best places to work, for sure. The problem I think we're struggling with is when uh, this HR centralization in particular, uh, which has been covered, I think, as well in different government, is, is a struggle for all employees. If something goes wrong, getting an answer quickly to fix your master employment record, to fix potentially something that was offered, just what are the rules regarding simple things, vacation, unscheduled leave, scheduled leave, we need to do better in there is no doubt, and we need to be a little bit more transparent in. I think that's looking forward is the situation where I have pause with the agency specifically identifying and kind of working towards those problems, Tom. Well, let's hope it's resolved before the end of this administration, since that'll make a third president that <laughs> well, you've been at negotiating. Least getting it better. At least, right, at least getting better is the goal. All right. M.J. Burke is first executive vice president of AFGE's National VA Council. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Tom, thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.